right. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing on in our series, uh, The Word, which is in the book of John. At the end of the message today, we're going to be celebrating communion. Uh, And so if you forgot to grab one of the cups back at the table, um, go and grab one now uh, so that as we go into that, you'll have it available. Um, uh, we took a break uh, kind of last week to t- take a look at baptism and with uh, Kishore being here uh, from India. Uh, if you're still looking for more information on him, we do have uh, the little brochures and his cards on the table. Um, but we had a lunch with him afterwards, uh, which was great. Uh, he is very funny and he's got a lot of stories. Uh, and so uh, if you're looking to support him, that information's back on the table. Uh, But in chapter 5, which is where we were in the book of John, we've been going through that, uh, kind of taking a look at the healing that happened at the pool of Bethesda, the conversation with religious leaders and everything after that. Uh, Today we're going to be getting into chapter 6. And so if you have your Bibles, want to turn to chapter 6, we're going to be kind of going through uh, sections of that, uh, but we'll also have the verses up on the screen uh, for you to be able to, to follow along. So in chapter 6, it kind of begins like Jesus has been having uh, this conversation with the religious leaders. They've been pushing back at him, and he's kind of been affirming that he is God, uh, that he's come, that he's the life and the light of the world, uh, and they're kind of getting offended. Uh, That conversation ends, and then chapter 6 starts by Jesus kind of leaving the area. And as he leaves the area, it tells us that there's actually this great crowd that begins to follow him because of the signs and miracles that Jesus has done by healing the sick. And so this healing at the pool of the Bethesda, uh, different healings that have been happening, uh, word is kind of spreading around, uh, and people are trying to, to seek him out. Uh, and so it's almost like, uh, imagine being in dusty Jerusalem, and there's no electricity, there's no street lights, there's couple of donkeys, there's stuff from donkeys on the road, <laughs> you know, that you kind of have to look around and you're kind of by the market and you hear like this clamoring and noise as a crowd passes by and, and you're, what's going on? Well, Jesus just went that way and we're following him. And so now you have a choice. You've heard about the miracles happening, the different signs. Do you, do you go and follow to see what else happens? Uh, or do you go about your business? And so as he's just walking through the area, this crowd starts to gather and follow him because they're wondering what's going to happen next. Who's going to be healed next? What's the next confrontation with the religious leaders? Like, that's why I want to follow. Like, what's he going to do next and, and how he confronts them? Anyways, uh, he goes up, and it says that he begins to, to walk up uh, a hill, and he turns around, and, and the crowd kind of like sits down at that point. Uh, and now it's going to be Sabbath soon. Uh, and so this is a different circumstance than the Sermon on the Mount, but it's really similar, right? Here's this crowd following him. He walks up the hill. He turns around, and, uh, and the crowd sits down, uh, and Jesus is like, we need to feed this crowd. And so the disciples are like, how are we going to do this? And, and somebody, you know, whether it was Matthew or Luke, does the quick numbers in their head. And they're like, in order to feed all these people, it would take 200 days worth of labor. The, the amount of money for, that it would cost for 200 days. So, so just imagine, you know, what you make, you know, in a two-week pay period, divide that by 10. Like, that's how much times 200 it would cost in order to feed this whole crowd. Like, like 
two-thirds of your, uh, the money that you make in a year to pay for this crowd. And they're like, we don't have that. And so then there's this little boy with five loaves and two fishes, uh, and this stage is kind of set for one of the, the most recognizable miracles in the Gospels. And we're going to read that beginning in verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, also with the fish, as much as they wanted. I, how does this even happen? I, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like we go to a potluck or a buffet or we're at somebody's house to have dinner and there's a bunch of people there and you walk up to the table and you see five loaves and two fishes and you know that there's like a thousand people behind you and yet it says they took as much as they wanted? Like who's first in line that says, well, I'll take a fish and half a loaf of bread and, you know... Number 500, they're on their own. But yet they're walking around with this and they're saying, yeah, take as much as you want. And they go to the next person, take as much as you want. And the next person, take as much as you want. Like at what point does a buzz start to happen? Because they know they started off with five loaves and two fish. You get past 30 people and that should be gone. But it's not. And so they continue to go through Everybody taking as much as they wanted. Verse 12, when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. They collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves uh, that were left over by those who had eaten. They, They actually end up with more leftovers than what they started off with food. When the people saw the sign was done, This is how they responded. They said, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the Messiah. Like, like it's so astounding to them to see so little food turn into so many leftovers after so many people have eaten uh, that they're just saying at this point, like, this must be the prophet. This is what we've been waiting for. And so in verse 15, it says, Jesus, when he realized that they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so he's like, it's not time yet. I'm not even supposed to be an earthly king. You're going to try and like grab me and then overthrow the Romans. That's not what's going to happen because he knew that he was there in order to die on the cross to pay for sins. So he goes up onto this mountain by himself. The disciples get into a boat and start rowing across the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds kind of notice this, that you know, there was only one boat that left. But then in the middle of the night, as the disciples are rowing, this is one of my, my favorite things, and there's a little bit more detail in some of the other Gospels. So it's in the middle of the night on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And again, they don't have electricity, right? And so there's not big spotlights, and the boat's not all lit up. Maybe they have, like, a little lantern, but they don't have to have, like, the green light in the front and the red light in back, you know, in case some motorboat's going by to hit them. So maybe they have a lantern or something like that. Jesus, in the middle of the night, without a boat, after praying, just starts, like, i got to get across the Sea of Galilee. And so he just starts walking across on the water. It's just mind-blowing to me in the first place. That was his plan. You guys go ahead. I'll catch up. 
And they're like, how are you going to catch up? We've got the boat. No, don't worry about it. And so they're just out there in the middle of the night. Jesus is just kind of out for his evening stroll to get across the Sea of Galilee. No big deal. It's like walking on a sidewalk. And just imagine, like, we, we, we know the rest of the story. Like, like here's Peter in the boat, and they see Jesus, and, and then they're like, oh, call me out. To me, like, what would it be like sitting in a boat in the middle of blackness? Like, like there's not some city out there or anything. You don't have spotlights looking around. You, you've got your little lantern on the boat, and, and you're in there, and, and there's something creepy to me about just being in utter blackness and not knowing what's out there. You know, what big fish is under the water? You know, what else is... And so you're sitting there, and you're kind of rowing to get through, and as you're rowing, and you've got this little globe of light from whatever lantern that you have, you see somebody kind of walking past on the edge of the light. And they were afraid, and then they find out that it's Jesus. And then you got the whole story with Peter walking on water and, and all of that. So you've got these amazing miracles that are happening at the beginning of, of John chapter 6 that just point to, to Jesus' power over the created world. Five loaves, two fishes, we'll get 12 baskets back. I need to get across the Sea of Galilee. I don't have a boat, no problem. I'll just walk on top of the water. Like he's demonstrating his mastery and, and his power over the created universe that he spoke into existence. That he is God. And he has that authority. It says the next day, the crowd began looking for Jesus uh, again. And we'll pick this up in verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, because the Father has set his seal of approve on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he has sent. Verse 30. What sign are you going to do that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Now, I find it a remarkable progression happening within this passage. Like, like they just were fed miraculously. And then they notice that Jesus is gone. And so they're like, well, let's go find him. But they go and find Jesus. And he, knowing what's going on in their hearts discerning their hearts, and he's done this multiple times through the book of John. He did it with Nicodemus. He did it with the Samaritan woman. He does it with so many people. Does it with them and says, uh, you're looking for me not because of the signs and miracles, not because people were healed, because your bellies are full. You ate the loaves and were filled. And so people right now, he's discerning, like they're seeking after him for comfort. Not, not just because he's done miraculous things, but just for comfort, just because uh, he can provide food for them. And so he challenges them on that. 
There's something more to life than just food that fills your belly. In fact, he goes that there's food that lasts for eternal life and that he would give it to them. Does that sound familiar? It's very similar to that passage with the woman at the well. You drink of this water, you're going to be thirsty again, but if you drink of the water that I will give to you, it will become a spring welling up within you until eternal life. You're going to find satisfaction. You're going to find fulfillment through Jesus and Him alone, not things of the world. And so He's telling them the same thing here. To work for things that uh, lead to eternal life, not for things that perish. To, to put their faith and trust in Him. That's that word believe in there. The Greek word pistis, uh, which is absolute trust, faith, uh, or belief. So He challenges them on them seeking comfort. They say, what do we do? Jesus' response is, have faith in Me. Believe in Me, and I will give you the food that leads to everlasting life. Do you notice what their next response then in verse 30 is? Show us a sign. We're here because we're hungry. You shouldn't be here because you're hungry. Okay, then we'll show us a sign. And they're totally skipping over the point that he's trying to make with them. That there's so much more than this physical world and that he is there offering salvation, but instead of heeding his teaching and then saying, how do we get this bread of life? which he then responded, believe in me. They choose not to believe in him. They choose not to trust in him, but instead are looking for more signs and more miracles. I think that this passage shows us clearly that the seeking of signs and miracles, even of of God, can be an idol in our lives. They're cool. We love to see them. We love to see people healed. We love to see God's miraculous provision for us in our life. And He promises that He will do these things. But if that's all we're seeking, if that's all we're trying to find, if that's all that we're trying to do, if that's the whole of a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're an idol in our life. Because we just want Him to give us comfort. We just want to see signs and miracles. We just want to be spiritually excited about something that is supernatural. And yet what Jesus is saying here is these things simply are meant to point to Him. The signs, the miracles are meant to point to Jesus. Once He is revealed, He is our source of eternal life. The bread of earth is not. It's the bread of heaven, which is Jesus. The the miracles and the signs, everything that Jesus did on this world... uh, was temporary. He healed somebody who was blind. They died later. Lazarus, come out of the grave. He died later. All temporary. But the thing that led to everlasting life is Jesus. Jesus goes on in this conversation to reveal this to them in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
I, I love the way that John writes his gospel. Because he so clearly shows that when Jesus teaches, he's teaching truth. And if you are not seeking to, to understand spiritually, it goes over people's heads. To Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus' first response was, how am I born again? Do I somehow go back to my mother and some weird thing happen? He didn't understand because he's looking at it from that natural point of view. He goes to the woman at the well and he says, the water I give you will well up to everlasting life. Her initial response was, how are you going to give me any water? You don't even have a bucket. And here he's doing it again. He's sitting here and he's saying that the bread of life that will lead to everlasting life will be my flesh. Now, as I say that here in the year 2021, as Christians, we're like, yep, I get what that means. He's not talking about cannibalism. But back then, they didn't understand because he hadn't been crucified yet. They didn't know the offering up of his body. The institution of communion where Jesus explained this hadn't happened yet. And so they're looking at this, and for those that are looking and they're having simply a worldly mindset, a worldly viewpoint, they find this extremely offensive. Where he's saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And they're just looking at things physically in the world. Verse 53, Jesus then says to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You do not have life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and, drink, and my blood remains in me and I in him. This is Jesus' response to them. He says, unless you eat of my flesh, and they're like, whoa, 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 how is this even going to happen? He doesn't answer them. He just pushes in and even goes further and says, okay, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you see that in this, he's actually referring back to the Mosaic law and all the foreshadowing that was pointing forward to Jesus Christ being the Messiah. He's talking about manna and this bread from heaven. And he points out that was just temporary. You ate it and you still died. But then also he begins to talk about the drinking of blood. And if you remember back into the Mosaic Law, it was forbidden to eat of the blood. Because in the blood is, was life. And so it was something that they were unable to do. They were forbidden to do that. And now Jesus is sitting here and saying these two things back in the Mosaic Law that you're so familiar with. Here's the manna. You can eat that. Here's blood. Don't drink that. That was all pointing forward to me, to Jesus. And he's saying this is the fulfillment of it. The eating of my flesh and the drinking of my blood. So how do they respond to that? Verse 59. He said these things while he's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. In their church, in a sense. Like, like he's there teaching these things. Everybody's coming. Uh, and they respond by saying this teaching is hard 
Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself what his disciples or what they were complaining about, asked them, does this offend you? So, so he knows that it's pushing against their sense of what is right and what is proper, their, their sense of what should be. And he's sitting there re, you know, knowing that he came to tra- change it all. And because they're so focused on earthly things, they're missing that point. And so he knows that it's offending them. So in verse 62, he says, What if you then were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, what if you then see me just go up to heaven? Which happens in Acts 1. And the disciples who stay get to see that. Verse 63, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there's some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. So this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And so Jesus is, is just sitting there and he is confronting people with their earthly mindset. Oh, the disciples that have stayed, Simon Peter and the rest of them, uh, are spiritually choosing to accept and trust Jesus, even though they may not understand some of the words. They know that there's a purpose to that. And in other examples, Jesus gives a parable that they don't understand. They don't leave. They just wait till afterwards and say, what did you mean by that? Could you teach us about this? Because they chose to trust Him and to trust the work of the Spirit in revealing the truth. Peter's saying, you have the words of eternal life. And Jesus pointing out the flesh, things of this world don't help at all. It's all about the Spirit. It's all about God working in His power. The thing that I find really astounding in this is that He just let people go. He didn't say, wait, 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 come back. Let me explain to you. You see, my, my flesh, I'm going to offer it up for you. Like I have to die in your place uh, on a cross, a, a Roman instrument of torture and execution, uh, so that if I do that, then you have the opportunity to have your sins forgiven so that you don't have to die and go to hell. And then three days later, I'm going to be raised up, uh, and that's going to provide the opportunity for me now to adopt you as my sons and daughters. Uh, And so that's what it means if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And there's going to be this new club thing that I institute where, you know, uh, if you're my followers, you celebrate communion every once in a while uh, in order to remind yourselves that I did this. And then the crowd was like, oh, now we understand. Can we have more bread now? He doesn't do that because he knew it was in their heart that the only reason they were there is because their bellies were filled and they wanted to see cool things. And he intentionally taught in a way that drove them away. Now if they had chose to have faith, if they chose to believe the way that the disciples did, 
the Spirit would have revealed to them and, and, and he would have followed, they would have followed Jesus and understood this the way that the disciples did. Jesus says to them, you don't want to go away too? He confronted them also. He hasn't explained this yet. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. Peter, Paul, John, Matthew, Luke, Mark are all there hearing the same thing and having their concept of what religion was from the Old Testament being confronted by Jesus. And he says to them without explaining it, all right, do you want to go? And their faith was tested in that moment. They're like, no, we trust you. We know that you have the words of eternal life. We don't understand everything that you're doing, but we choose to follow you. This passage, I think, confronts us uh, as a church. As a church in America, as a church in the world. Why do we follow Jesus? Is it because it gives us a sense of comfort? A sense of protection from eternity and hell? Do we go to events and things just trying to seek miracles and cool things happening? That can be idolatry. And Jesus confronted that with teaching. Confronted it with deep teaching of who He was and the need to follow after Him. Our faith cannot be built on signs and wonders alone, but it needs to be anchored in teaching. The signs and wonders point to who God is. Then we need to seek and know who He is so that we can follow Him and that we can be anchored in this world. The other thing that I think it confronts us on is the, the need to choose to have faith and trust in God when we may feel differently. That was the moment of confrontation for the crowd. Jesus is saying, does this, does this offend you? I'm telling you the truth. Does it offend you? And their choice in that moment was, yeah, that offends me. We're out. Or, the response by the faithful was, this is a hard teaching, but we're here to stay. And we're here to conform to what you have. Our church uh, in America, our church across the world, uh, is facing uh, a similar confrontation in our society today. The cross is offensive to the world because it calls for submission. It calls for a trust, even if we feel differently, even if we would like things to be different, even if other things make sense to us, or the world is saying this is the way it should be, and it's contrary to what Jesus says, we choose to trust. People are offended by the cross, offended by Christ, because it's a call to submission, to give up our lives in order to hold to who Jesus is. It's a call to give up our freedom. We'd like to be free to make any choice that we want to make. And we have so many choices. You know, if, well, we can't have Chick-fil-A on Sundays. That's a restriction. But if you want to have lunch, you could go to Taco Bell, you could go to Citrus Cafe, you could go to any number of places. We have that freedom to do those things. Now, that's an easy thing. We like to have the freedom of using our money the way that we want to use our money. We want to have freedom of having the relationships that we want to have. We want to have all these freedoms. 
But the life of following Christ is a life of choosing to submit to him and to set aside our freedoms, to set aside our sense of what is safe, what is secure. The disciples of the first century were threatened daily. And yet they didn't even consider that sense of safety and security. They're just like, we're following Jesus and what he told us to do. And he told us uh, that they will hurt us for that. Okay, we know it's coming, but we know this is what we're supposed to do. It's a hard thing to step into faith in that. But it's a setting aside of ourselves. The Bible calls us to, to set aside our sexuality, uh, our gender, our preferences. To God made us to be. The way He designed us to be. And for marriage to be one man and one woman together reflecting Jesus Christ and the church. That is His design and that is offensive to this world because they want the freedom of choice. And they're confronted with that and the following of Jesus and like, this is too offensive for us. We're out. But that confrontation uh, doesn't stop at homosexuality, uh, at, at fluid gender stuff alone, but it's uh, for people in traditional relationships as well. Sex before marriage. The Bible says don't do it. Because you don't have that bond and that connection and that commitment to one another that's meant to reflect Jesus' eternal commitment to the church. Unbreakable, unchanging, which is what marriage reflects. And so sex outside of that is saying, well, we don't need to have that reflection of Jesus' eternal commitment to the church, a husband's eternal commitment to his wife. And yet we see it happening so often within churches. It's a hard thing. Do we choose to submit? And there's so many other things. We, we give up our, our right for earthly justice and we trust God for justice. We give up our right to be offended by other people. Because what does it matter what they think of me? This is what God thinks of me. To give up our right of choosing our own future. Like, I want to be able to build my own little kingdom where I have a, a bass boats and I can go golfing on the weekends and we've got a cabin here. And we can put all of our efforts into trying to build something like that up. And I'm not saying that, that those things are bad, but did God call you to do those things? And then to use them for ministry? Or are they just there for your own comfort? your own private use? How, how are they for the kingdom? Because the truth is, in Christ, that boat, you don't even own that. You're simply a steward of God's resources here on earth. And the boat's made with everything that he spoke into existence. The, the, the money that you used to buy the boat, you got because you exchanged your time and skills for money. But where did you get your time and skills? From God. 
who spoke you into existence and gifted you and equipped you with everything that you're capable of doing. And so you follow the logic of all of that and everything that we have, this checkered shirt, is God's. I'm just a steward of it. So how do I use it for his kingdom? How do I use it for his glory? I, that's a hard teaching. Your, your watch that's an heirloom from your family, a, a thing that's been in your family for generations, it's God's. It's not yours. Do you submit that? This is that confrontation of hard teaching where Jesus is saying, everything is mine and I give it all to you to use as stewards. Just be faithful with, it, with your time here on the earth. And our choice is then as stewards, or as Paul would say, as a doulos, a servant or slave of Jesus, how do you submit to that? How do you submit the way that you work at your job to Jesus? Because we do all things unto the Lord. Again, we're, we're called to have a variety of jobs. We're called to be in business. We're called to be in finance. We're called to be in service. We're called to be homemakers and stay-at-home moms. We're, we're, we're called to do all of these different things, but, but how do we use those to serve Jesus? We can have boats. We can have cars. We can have shoes. We can have all of these other things, but, but how do we use them to serve Jesus? This is where that confrontation uh, of things of the flesh, things of this world do not matter. It's simply the spirit and a relationship with God. And we do all things unto his glory. This is the hard teaching. And so we can choose to be offended and say, you know, I'm going to keep my little compartmentalized world of everything that I kind of want and my design and my intentions and my desires, and I'm going to dedicate uh, this two and a half hours on Sunday to kind of go hang with fellow Christians and celebrate Jesus. We can choose to do that. But what God is asking us and calling us to is to have our whole lives for him to give up treating things of this world that are just temporary they will not be in existence a thousand years from now ten thousand years from now everybody here if you are a son or daughter of the most high god who spoke all things into existence a hundred years from now we're going to be sitting at a celebration table with him and the things of this world will not matter to us anymore the confrontation that Jesus gave on that day was a choice to wholly commit to trusting and following him in all things, even when it doesn't make sense to us or we feel like it should be a different way. Because he is the one that has the words of eternal life. He is the one that is the bread of life. And through his blood poured out for us, we get life. This is why we celebrate communion. It is a physical representation of what he did for us. That he offered up his flesh on the cross, arms nailed to wood, his side pierced with a spear. And the bread represents his sacrifice. 
and us partaking of the bread is us choosing to say, I'm with you in this. I choose to fully surrender and fully partake of who and what you are and what you did for us. The juice or the wine represents his blood that flowed out of those wounds onto the dusty ground of Jerusalem. As he stood there in full spectacle, bearing the shame of the cross, as onlookers waited for him to die. As his life drained out in the blood, it represents the cup that we partake. Now we do not believe that this bread becomes the actual flesh of Jesus or this juice becomes the actual blood, although there are some faiths out there that do believe that. He gave this to us as a gift to be able to partake and declare, I am fully submitted and fully surrendered and my entirety, my entirety of hope, of life, is in the body and the blood of Jesus and what he did at the cross. And so this morning we're going to partake of communion, fully acknowledging that, what he did for us, and all that it means, but then also acknowledging that this is a call to fully surrender and follow. In Matthew chapter 26, in verse 26, he says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is life. Father, we come before you. Thank you for this uh, tangible representation of what you so freely willingly and in love offered up for us. Father, we thank you for this reminder that uh, you paid for our sins, that you washed us clean, that through your resurrection we are adopted into your family, and that you are coming again as you have promised. And we trust wholly in that, regardless of what happens on this earth or the time that we have left. Father, we come and we look at this passage where many followed you because of signs and wonders or the comfort that they had because their stomachs were full. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, that you would help us uh, not to have that be our foundation. We're thankful for the miracles that we do and we long to see them happen so that others are drawn towards you. But let us not guard us from seeking after them as the end all instead of just the sign that points to you. Let us know you more, trust you more, and submit to you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.